means to either conform, comply, or act in accordance with. To literally imitate or to copy. So then why do we think when Jesus said, follow me, he meant raise a hand, sign a card, or show up at church once a week? When Jesus said, follow me, he wanted people who imitated him, who conformed to him, who looked like him. He wanted us to drop everything, radically change our lives, and yield to the unknown. He wanted us to follow, to go where he goes, to do what he does, because he's bringing his kingdom, and the only thing he asks is, will we follow? Well, good morning. I'm, uh, I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and it's my privilege to share with you this morning. Uh, Tamil is away. She has uh, actually messaged me. She has completed her first half marathon. My reaction was, why? Like, why would you do such a thing? Like, I get fatigued driving a half marathon. But uh, we'll keep her in her prayers and pray that she starts making wise decisions. We're continuing today in our Following Jesus series, and uh, we're in our fifth week of building a definition of what Jesus says a Christian is called to be. So here is our definition so far. A Christian is one who follows Jesus by devoting his or her life to the kingdom vision of God, to a life of loving God and loving others and to a society shaped by restorative justice, especially for those who have been marginalized. Now, essentially, when we devote our lives to following Jesus, we begin to seek his kingdom vision. The kingdom that Jesus ushered into our broken world is shaped by love, Love is what shapes his kingdom, the kind of love that, that loves unconditionally, a sacrificial love for others, especially for those who are marginalized in our society, those who have been marginalized in our society by others. Now, this is a very different definition than what we started out with at the very beginning of this series. I want to, to remind you again of where we started, how majority of Christians actually defined Christianity. That a Christian is someone who has accepted Jesus, right? Accepted Jesus specifically into their heart. And that Christian life, this is what it's supposed to look like, is the development of personal private practices of piety, separation from sin and the world, and a life dedicated to rescuing sinners from hell. Do you see the different pathway that we are taking as we look at the, uh, the Gospels, as we look at Scripture, and as we begin to develop defining what following Jesus looks like 
based on scripture instead of based on whatever it is that we created. One of the things that I want you to recognize in as we journey through this, we as the church spend an awful lot of time using the phrase, the Bible says. And we argue and we use the text, the Bible, as proof texting. And we, we grab, we look for themes in scripture and we try to, to answer societal problems using scripture and we grab texts and we say, the Bible says this. So things like homosexuality, things like whether women can be leaders in the church, these are all like hotbed issues that we very quickly point to the Bible and say, but Paul says this very clearly, Paul says this. Well, all of that may be true or may not be true that Paul says this, but today I'm going to show you other things the Bible says. As a matter of fact, I'm going to walk you through a theme today that actually is a much deeper, much bigger theme than any of those cultural subjects that we so deeply insist the Bible says specific things about. It's interesting how we ignore the main themes in Scripture, but then pull out the cultural themes looking for answers. I would actually argue that if you've spent more time focusing on the main themes of Scripture, the things that Scripture actually calls us to, that the answer to all of those things would actually be really simple. Notice the difference in that definition that I gave from the, the one that we're building to the first definition. So as, as we look at what Jesus has told us so far about the Christian life, start comparing these different definitions. You see, Jesus focuses on his disciples following his ways, following his ways of loving and his ways of justice in a broken world. Now, so far, there's been nothing about our own private practices of piety or separating ourselves from the world or saving people from hell. While all of these things are very true, I do want you to understand, folks, I'm not saying that our original definition is wrong. What I'm actually saying is our original definition is not the holistic picture of the gospel. It's not the whole thing. We've spent an awful lot of time in the Christian church, mostly in evangelicalism, that wing of the Christian church, building the gospel off of salvation alone. And the challenge with that is, is that that is not the full holistic picture. And so my goal in this sermon series has been to give you the whole picture of the gospel and what it is that Jesus did on the cross, that both his life, his death, his resurrection, that everything he said, everything he did, all of that is saturated in the gospel message itself. It's not just a salvific message and we end there. We don't just focus on the death. We also, and the apostles, focused much more on the resurrection. So the, the, the things that we have been taught, it's not that they're not true, it's just that they're not complete. And today's added piece to our definition continues in this more communal direction 
of love. The kingdom language that Jesus uses is very communal. It's not individualism. And so it's, it's uh, going to ha- take us in that direction. Rather than this individualized faith built on rules and regulations, which is piety, the root of all of Jesus' teachings is love. Now, some people would argue with me about that. I'm completely confused by that. I'm completely confused when somebody says, when you preach a loving gospel, you're preaching a fluffy gospel. I I just don't understand that. I have a hard time comprehending that. I I don't know. Maybe I'll do another PhD to try to get somewhere else. But I just keep landing on this answer of love. That love is the gospel. And that love is what Jesus roots all of his teachings in. And so today we're going to continue down that path because I just can't get down another one. Our teaching today revolves around one simple word. So what we're adding to the definition is not very long, but this is one of the most overused, misunderstood words. It's a word that was really dominant in the 60s, but it's an incredibly rich theme in Scripture. As a matter of fact, this theme in Scripture is more prevalent than any of those key cultural arguments today, and that's peace. What an overused, underachieved word that is. The word peace stands tall and proud in the Bible. But it's important that we learn what the Bible means by peace. You see, the word peace in Scripture is a kingdom word, and it's a word that Jesus uses a lot. In John chapter 14... Jesus says this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. and Do not be afraid. He, he's speaking these words to his apostles after his resurrection, where he is showing himself to, him before his, to them before his ascension. And the specific context of this passage is that he is promising his disciples an advocate. He's promising his disciples the Holy Spirit. And it's important, folks, that you catch how the Spirit and peace are interconnected. It's only, and I want you to hear what I'm saying, it's only through the presence of the Spirit in our lives that we can experience peace. It is only through the presence of the Spirit in our lives, that we can experience peace. Peace is a result of love. It's a result of loving God. It's a result of trusting God. And it's a result of believing in God's promises. But what exactly did Jesus mean by peace. Does Jesus mean inner peace? Does he mean tranquility? Does he mean contentment and serenity? Do we feel peace? Or is peace something different than just our feelings? Is Jesus talking about, and those of you who know hymns will recognize this, if you don't know hymns, you'll have no idea and you'll think I'm weird. Is Jesus talking about a it is well with my soul kind of peace? 
Or is he talking about making peace and living at peace with others? Yes. Yes. All of that. Now, remember, peace is a product of loving God and loving others. Without the first part, you will never understand biblical peace. The kind of peace that Jesus actually would have been talking about is not really the kind of peace that we would, you know, peace on earth, the, the things that we wear the t-shirts about. He actually uh, was a Jewish rabbi. I don't know if you knew that. And he would have come from the tradition of Judaism that would have believed in a word called shalom. Anybody ever heard the word shalom? The word Shalom. Shalom is a, a pervasive concept in the Bible that most commonly relates to a relationship of love and loyalty with God and one another. So the Jews would talk a lot about this concept of shalom, about loving and being loyal to God and about loving and, and, and being loyal to one another. Shalom peace is not just an inner peace. It's much bigger than that. So what kind of peace does Jesus actually call us to? What is he talking about when he says, I have brought peace, peace I leave with you, peace I give you? And in that passage, you notice that if he's leaving peace with them, they were absent of peace, right? So peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. This is something that we need. And he doesn't give it the, the way the world gives it. And then he says, and don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. Fear, troubled hearts, is not peace. But this, this peace that Jesus talks about, let me ask you a couple simple questions as we start to define what he meant. Do you think that Jesus wanted the poor to have food? Yeah? Okay, so far so good. We're doing all right. Do you think that Jesus wanted the impoverished to have health care? Do you think that Jesus wants the needy to have a safe place of refuge? Do you think that Jesus wants countries to get along? Shalom peace brings inner peace and peace around us. To Jesus, peace was at the core of what he meant by the kingdom. Kingdom means love, justice, and peace in a society on earth as it is in heaven. That's what Jesus prayed for, didn't he? For as it is in heaven to come to earth. For that peace, that's, that's exactly what he prayed for. He prayed, folks, for shalom, for Jewish Peace And in the first century, the Jewish shalom meant these three specific things. The first is material prosperity. Now, before you run with that and say, that's right, we're supposed to prosper, we're supposed to have more stuff, that isn't actually what they meant by material prosperity. What they actually meant was God providing manna, God providing for your needs. That's the material things that bring shalom is your needs are met. 
And the second is loving relationship with God, family, Israel, and other nations. And the third is moral goodness and integrity. For a Jew of Jesus' day, listen very carefully to what I'm saying. You've got peace when you've got what you need and need what you've got. I'm going to say that again. You've got peace when you've got what you need and actually need what you've got. So if you think that getting stuff is what will bring you peace, you're missing shalom. It will never bring you peace. When you love those that you're with and are with the ones you love. When the ones you're with love you and when you're doing good to those who are doing good to you. This is what the Jews saw as peace, as shalom. This is what Jesus would have seen as shalom. An inner peace that turns into an outer peace. The Apostle Paul says this to the church in Philippi. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Hmm. Rejoice in the Lord always. Not like not just when times are good. Not not just when you know everything's lining up and everything's working out our way and we're feeling so blessed, then we'll rejoice in the Lord. No, he says, rejoice in the Lord always, not just at church, not just on Sunday morning. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Now, Paul, he really means this because he says, I will say it again. Rejoice. Folks, that is a deep theme in scripture that there is a rejoicing in your heart, a joy in your heart that can't help but well up because you have received the grace of God. Rejoice in the Lord always. Then, then he sets this posture that he says we're to take. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Has every Christian you've ever met been marked by gentleness? Is your experience in church been marked by gentleness? You see, he says, let your gentleness be evident to all, not just to your friends, not just to your family, not just the people you like, but to all. And he says, the Lord is near. Now he gives us a, a do not, but listen to what his do not is. Do not be anxious about anything. How many people feel anxious? He's, he says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving... In every situation, pray and petition the Lord with thanksgiving. When it sucks, when you're going through the worst possible thing in your life, be thankful for it. The Bible says, he says, present your requests to God with this thankful heart. And listen to what he says the result of all of this is. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds 
in Christ Jesus. Peace comes from rejoicing in the Lord, being gentle, and trusting that God is in control. Peace rests in our relationship with Jesus, our closeness to the Spirit, and it's beyond anything we can ever understand. In the Old Testament, which, by the way, is the scriptures that Jesus taught from. He didn't have the New Testament. Peace carries this fundamental meaning of welfare, prosperity, or wholeness, as well as the absence of hostility. Peace is inner and outer in nature. And we're called to be people of peace. We're called in his kingdom to live peaceably. In order to experience inner peace, we have to seek outer peace. These two things are actually linked together in Jesus' mind. You cannot have inner peace if you do not have outer peace. You cannot have outer peace if you don't have inner peace. Do you see why in our world we're constantly running around trying to find peace and we never find it? Because we try to fulfill it in all these different places where it doesn't actually exist because it's only found in Jesus. In our relationship with Jesus. Jesus. And that's a relationship that you have to press into, that you have to work at. Following Jesus means that we're shaped by a kingdom that is shaped by peace. We're called as followers to make peace in all things. We're called to be biblical peacemakers. Now, in my uh, dissertation for my doctorate, uh, one of the things that the, the main thing that I actually wrote on was the consumeristic issues in today's church and the different models of church, the attractional model and the missional model and how we fight about what models of church do we do. And I actually argued that you can mix and match both of those models, it's all fine, but if you don't have a posture of peacemaking, you'll never attract people through the attractional model and you'll never attract people through telling the gospel to them because I believe that the whole posture needs to be with a peacemaking posture. Now, that's very Anabaptist of me, uh, but I did get a really good grade. So this is a subject, folks, that like, I really believe that there's, there's a deep tone in Scripture, especially the New Testament, about peace, and specifically peacemaking. And so the call to biblical peacemaking challenges us to be more than passive non-resistors. I actually think if you're preaching that peacemaking is about not like being these sort of passive hands-off non-resistors, let's just pretend like there's not issues, let's just kind of avoid everything. I think that's a very elementary understanding of peacemaking. As a matter of fact, like I, I think it's beyond elementary. I think that three-year-olds understand it better than that. I, I won't, yeah, last service I used other words, but we'll just stay away from that. The word peacemaker combines the meaning of well-being, of wholeness, with the idea of action. 
It's both inner peace and external peace. A peacemaker is one who actively intervenes in situations of conflict in order to establish peace. Jesus teaches that one of the ways to live as peacemakers is to refuse retaliation. This idea is both clear in Scripture and very radical. Listen, Listen to what he says my rendition of Matthew 5, 38 to 42, he says, don't resist, but turn the other cheek. Do not insist on legal rights. Mm. The Bible says, surrender personal property. The Bible also says, do not resist those who demand assistance and to give money instead of lending when a loan is requested. That's Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. Now, let's jump over into Luke's gospel. Luke observes that we should refuse retaliation, and he gives us a reason for it. Because of who God is. Because of the nature of who God is. He's a God of grace and of mercy. And we should therefore respond to our oppressors in a like manner. You can find that in Luke chapter 6, verses 32 to 38. The Bible says... God and mercy, grace and mercy from God drive peace. The proactive biblical warrant for peacemaking is not only, emph- it's not only emphasized specifically in the Gospels, the apostles actually talk about it a lot more than Jesus even did. See, this theme is much bigger than all the stuff we're fighting about. The apostles described the life of of the believing community in a very similar manner to how Jesus did. The followers of Christ are to serve their enemies, the apostles say. Paul, specifically in Romans 12, verse 20, says, On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. What kind of concept is that, right? Like, I want my enemy to not be, like, to be hungry so that I can be full and go beat him. Right? Like, Like, I'm not going to feed anybody but the Toronto Maple Leafs because I want them to win, right? So, but he says, let your enemy, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. In other words, meet the needs of your enemies. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, listen to what he says. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Instead of giving them what you think we should give them, you're supposed to meet their needs, and that actually gets them back worse. Think about how awesome that is. Followers of Christ are to return good for evil. Peter talks about this. In 1 Peter 3, verse 9, he says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. I want you to see the link back to the Abrahamic covenant there. What did the Abrahamic covenant say that Abraham's Abraham's, um, seed would be? A blessing to the nations. So listen to what Peter's saying here. Do not repay evil with evil or insults with insults. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Do you see that linkage? 
where you may not inherit a blessing if you're repaying evil with evil or insult with insult. Followers of Christ do good to all people, not just people they like, to all people. Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Now, I find that passage really interesting because the fact that he has to highlight to the Galatian church that, uh, that we need to be uh, good to all people, especially to one another within the church, would allude to the fact that it was already a disaster. And in Galatia, they have all kinds of issues going on. They got Jews and Gentiles fighting about doctrine, don't they? Fighting about what the Bible says. And the Jews saying, you've got to become a Jew in order to be a Christian. And them saying, what? What's going on? And Paul has to intervene on all of this. And so very early in the Christian church, we can't even get along with ourselves. And Paul then says, we have to do good to all people, especially to one another, because it starts here. To be a follower of Christ, we pursue peace with all people. Romans 12 says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Notice he says, as far as it depends on you. That's important. Who do you have control over? Who, who do you actually truly have control over? I'd love to think I have control over Carrie, but we know that that's not realistic, right? So who do you have? Yeah, yourself. That's it. The only person that you can actually truly control is yourself. Interesting because psychology says that most of our anxiety and our issues come from our need to control others. And so in this passage, he says, therefore, as we have, sorry, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, you can control yourself. And so in your situations, in your actions, Live at peace with everyone. Don't point out how someone else isn't able to do this. You can only control you. Peacemaking is much more than simply refusing to retaliate. It's much more Christ-centered than that. It involves loving our oppressors and loving the people who hate us. Instead of hate, retaliation, and all the other things the world sees as normal when someone has wronged us, Christ's followers are called to live as Jesus did, to act as Jesus did. Jesus calls those who follow him to love their neighbor. All of these characteristics, folks, represent the ways of Jesus Christ, and a disciple of Jesus is someone who follows his ways. The world says an eye for an eye. If someone threatens your livelihood, take them out. Act first and make sure you win. But Jesus changes our hearts through the power of grace. And that grace must be passed on to everyone we know. This is what being Jesus means in a world that is broken and absent of Christ.
peace is something Jesus calls us to as a follower of his way, and it's part of Christ's mission for the church. Peacemaking is active, it's evangelistic, and it's Jesus-centered. Matthew, in his gospel, gives us a picture of this loved-based justice, this peace-based kingdom that Jesus preaches. And it's a passage that we know quite a bit, but we really ignore. It's not one of those moments where we say, the Bible says, and then we start rhyming off the Beatitudes. Instead, we like to say, the Bible says, and then we wag our finger to say, you can't do this, or you shouldn't do that, because this is sin, or that is sin. And we forget how Jesus defined who it was that is actually living in the kingdom. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Isn't that countercultural to everything that we know? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. But we see competency as someone who is strong and bold and dominating. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Oh my goodness, there it is. And what does he say the peacemakers are? Children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This entire passage oozes shalom. It oozes Jesus' understanding of what shalom is, of what peace is, and it's only found in his kingdom. Peace is the result of a life of steadfast commitment to work things out. The result of letting God's inner peace become God's outer peace. Jesus and peace belong together and followers of Jesus follow Jesus. That was a really profound statement. To follow Jesus means to pursue peace. The kingdom life is the peace life. Justice, love, and compassion. These are the things that promote peace. These sort of actions are vital to the peace life. Some people say that those things aren't even part of the gospel. I don't understand. I don't get it. Because if his life is the gospel, not just his death. See, that's what we focus so much on, his death and what he accomplished with his death. But what about his life and what about his resurrection? It's not a complete definition. Justice, love, and compassion, they promote peace 
And they're a vital piece of the life that Jesus calls us to. Listen to what Matthew says in Matthew 25, 35. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. And in that story, Jesus is welcoming that person in. But the person who didn't do those things, he's not. The gospel message is the vision of peace on earth. Acts 10, verse 36. You know the message God sent to his people of Israel. I actually would argue that most of us actually don't. But he's, the author's assuming here, Luke is assuming, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel. Well, what was that message? He's going to tell us. Announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Do you know how huge that statement there actually is? And how deeply ignored that actually becomes in our Christian doctrine in many ways. The message God sent to the people of Israel was announcing the good news of peace, but that peace is only through Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. It doesn't say someday in the future. He's the Lord of all now. On the cross, his resurrection accomplished something far greater than just his death. And that was the conquering of sin and death. You see, his death didn't accomplish that. His death made us right with God, that, that atoning sacrifice. But his resurrection is actually what flips everything upside down. And if you notice, the apostles focus more on that. If you want a heart that's full of peace, then press into life in the Spirit. Seek justice for the marginalized and be a peacemaker in all things. It's all driven by love. So here's our definition continued. A Christian is one who follows Jesus by devoting his or her life to the kingdom vision of God, to a life of loving God and loving others, and to a society shaped by justice, especially for those who have been marginalized, and to peace. Now, we're not done there. We've got two more weeks to keep building this. But it's obvious that Jesus believed that peace and reconciliation was the way God wanted his church to live out their faith. The New Testament letters describe members of the believing community as ministers of peace and reconciliation. They served their enemies, returned good for evil, pursued peace with all people. This connection of peacemaking and reconciliation is extremely important to understand. Not only are we to seek peace, but we are also to seek resolution of our differences. Jesus made us right with God through his reconciling work on the cross. His church is called to actively live as people of reconciliation. The worship team can join me.
As we move into a time of communion this morning, I want you to spend a little bit of time in communion, not just reflecting on what it is that Jesus did for us, but also asking the Holy Spirit to speak to you of what action you need to take to live your life for Jesus. And what I mean by that is let the Spirit reveal things to you and what he reveals to you, respond with action to the Spirit's nudging. Now what the Holy Spirit may do is create conviction that requires repentance. And repentance means a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of action. So when we speak of repentance, we're actually speaking about genuine loving change. Not just saying, oops, I screwed up, and oops, I screwed up again, and oops, I screwed up again. True repentance is a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of action. A new trajectory for life. So the Spirit might be convicting you in that way, and you need to respond to that by repenting. The Spirit may also, as we reflect on what Jesus did on the cross, the Spirit may call you to action. There might be something that he is nudging on your heart. And folks, we need to be a church that responds to the calling of the Holy Spirit. Not hum and ha, not like have meetings about it and try to really discern if this is what God is really saying to us. Just acting on it. Just hearing it, understanding that here's your discernment process. Is it within God's nature? If the answer is yes, do it. Stop talking about it and respond to it. And in this moment, we're reflecting on his death and his resurrection, on the things that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, the ultimate act of love, giving one's life for another. And so it's in this moment where we don't just do this, you know, drink the little shot of juice and the little crappy bread. It's in this moment that we step back and we say, Lord, mold me and shape me. Help me to reflect on who you were and who you are in my life. And help me to, to learn to follow your ways. Call me to, to repent, to change, to be different. To follow who you are. Because folks, that is what is going to bring you inner and outer peace is fully relying on who Jesus Christ is and the work that he did on the cross for us. Mm -hmm.